Data storytellers. Today on the show, I have with me Jason Jarrett. Jason is the director of global master data governance for Abbott, uh, for specifically the rapid diagnostic division. And today we're going to explore his journey uh, as a data leader, and we're going to see what he's most excited about and uh, some of his best practices in creating a data-driven organization. So first of all, Jason, welcome on the show. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Looking, uh, looking forward to it. Looking forward to chatting. Yeah, likewise. So you do have, um, I would say, maybe a little bit of a, a little bit of an unconventional background uh, compared to your average data analytics practitioner. I mean, not too eccentric, but still, I think it would be interesting for the audience to hear. How did you end up working with data in the in the first place? Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it's been somewhat of a journey, and not one I, I think when I first started my career, I, I actually predicted or knew where I'd be heading. Um, and it kind of starts in the beginning, you know, when I was growing up in a, in a small town in North Carolina, I worked in a, in a furniture factory and that was what my, my family did. So that was where I started at, at a younger age before, uh, college and, you know, working on an assembly line. So very heavy, like thinking about like process, right. Process orientation, the flow of like a production line. Um, and it really started to prepare me one that, you know, I wanted to do something a little bit bigger, a little bit different um, where I really got to think about things. But um, but it kind of set that foundation. And I think some of that baseline of, of thinking about end to end and I'll get to some of those themes, I think, probably through a conversation. But that was really where my interest in, in the process and, and mapping things and understanding it really probably kicked off. And, you know, so I. I went on to, to university or college and uh, majored in accounting, just kind of started in marketing, was trying to find that path, um, did a little English minor stint, which was pretty random in uh, creative literature and uh, was heading marketing, did well in accounting classes. And they're like, you can get a job when you get out of college. And I was like, you know what, that sounds uh, that sounds good to me. And uh, so I ended up getting my CPA, typical path, you know, audit, Deloitte and Touche is where I started at. Um, was there for a few years and moved over to Ernst & Young. And this was right around, you know, during the the, the late 90s, you had kind of the dot-com boom. And so you had a lot of M&A um, companies, a lot of startups, tech companies. So I moved over to e and did a lot of uh, startup work in M&A. And, uh, and I enjoyed it. I got to travel a lot, see a lot of different stuff, meet a lot of different people. You work crazy hours, right? But uh, that that can be fun if you're working with a good group, I think. Um, and just working in a lot of different things, like a radio station uh, merger, which was completely different. You know, I knew nothing about like studio performance like we're doing today. Um, so it was, it was kind of fascinating and just getting to see the world a little bit. And after that, kind of just went and became a controller at uh, John Deere and Hitachi, a, a joint venture between them. And that was where I probably started to really curtail that, you know, business expertise, that business knowledge, you know, root accounting and trying to relate that to the factory, the process, the production systems. And, you know, always staying true to really digging into the operations of the business, understand the products, our markets, who do we sell to our customers, most importantly. Um, and I think that was something I really began to, to consume early on. Um had, a, had another role at Lowe's for a, a short bit, and then we moved on um, and had an opportunity with Disney. Moved on to Disney, still in controllership for Walt Disney World, the theme parks and resorts, and a role there. And really at Disney, I think I began to really ingest those core concepts of Disney, its heritage. And, and one of the ones that really stuck with me, and we'll talk more about it, I think we should, is brand, uh, your own personal brand. Because for Disney, it's all about their brands, right? And, and they utilize them and structure data around it and strategy around that, I think, in, in a very unique way and understanding the customer and the customer need and where that is heading in the future. And they are always trying to think ahead of that. Um, at Disney, also moved into FP&A, really started to think about data at this point, forecasting, right? Trying to trying to think about strategies, what those strategies would bring to the business from a business value aspect. I needed information, needed data, started to develop more of a passion for it. Didn't really understand IT systems architecture that well outside of an accounting system structure like a ERP system. And then after Disney, I had an opportunity to go to a medical startup uh, called Lear. 
and I started in controller shift just to get my my feet under me, moved down to FPA, heavy forecasting at that point in kind of a the medical device world. And uh, really the, the company had grown through heavy acquisition. So not, a, not the best data framework. And that was probably the first big project. So I was in FPNA and I got an interest in data. We started playing around with ClickView and, and it was really to embark on a path to drive better reporting and better insights. And it was really started watching YouTube videos, man. It was, it was nothing, nothing fancy. Started doing some trainings um, and just teaching myself how to do some light programming, how to get more insights out of the data that we could get to. And, uh, and that lasted for a few years and moved into kind of corporate strategy um, on a path there. And, uh, and, and, and over this time, I began to develop the knowledge that, well, wait a minute, I can learn these tools. They're great. ClickView, Tableau, they're all awesome. You know, it's really, you know, empowering, you know, people like me, just a business user to get to information and insights faster. I finally led down the path of the data source, right? Understanding data sources, where I pulled it from and the processes around how data got into those sources, that impacted the reporting I was getting. And so at this point, I really began to broad that end-to-end -end analytics perspective. And that was how, you know, we, we got acquired by Abbott and Abbott at the end of integration asked if I would lead kind of a global master data effort. And it was really to begin to set up that foundation to then kick off that journey of that full analytics or data journey, develop that roadmap. And that's really where we're at right now is trying to, that's the big project for us, setting up an MDM foundation, completing that end-to-end -end data perspective you know, for our company or our business. So completely never expected this path. Always expected finance or FP&A probably or controllership. And, uh, but, but I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't change it. I actually absolutely loved it. I haven't booked a journal entry in seven or eight years. And I, I don't think I could go back now, honestly. So, so that's kind of the quick and quick and dirty overview. Okay. So you do have a cool story and I wrote down a few things. First of all, I'm a, like a pen and paper guy. I, uh, just took a few notes here. So first of all, uh, you studied marketing and creative literature. So before we go any further, and it probably might tie into some of the some of the insights that we draw. Yeah. What what made you really the right fit for Abbott to take on this uh, responsibility? Uh, what what made you look into marketing and creative liter uh, literature in the first place? Yeah, yeah. I you know I would say growing up, I always had kind of that creative. Uh, spark or side of my brain. You know, I, I was never a great artist. Um, I could always, I think as I got older, I could recognize like art that I liked, right? And I would could really study it and, and learn about like architecture, even like visually things that were aesthetically pleasing to me. And I think from there, even looking at, you know, whether it's a marketing campaign, you know, you're looking at brand or logos or just how it all fits together. I think that was even at a younger age, that was that interest. And I was right. The, the creative lit for me, I, I like literature. I like understanding it and interpreting it into what is this really telling or what does it mean to me? I always think that's kind of unique. And I, I view analytics the same way. If I look at a, a visual or a dashboard, you know, what this means to me or the way I perceive it may be completely different to someone else or a different user. So I think the fun part about analytics is being able to put your hat on, but also someone else's hat and, 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 and try to jump into their perspective, their experience and what this, the, the decision or the insight is that they're getting out of it. And that was what, you know, I love that creative side of things, you know, and just trying to figure that out, jumping through different roles, jumping through different hats. Cause to me, that's how you that's how you uncover that that insight that you don't know yet. Because we always have those standard metrics, standard dashboards. Here's revenue, blah blah blah. To me, when you're taking different data sets, you know, and fitting it together in some type of model or analytical visual, and it gives you that next insight to create that new innovation or that next level. That that to me is so rewarding, and I I, I think earlier on, that creative side was where I was heading in marketing and literature. And uh, uh, but I, I liked accounting, you know, it was very logical to me. I never was good at math, though, which is ironic. A lot of people say, oh, you like math? No, I, I, I hate it. Um, but but computers do my math for me. So so it seemed like a pretty good fit when I got more and more into to data and analytics. I could just tell the computer what I wanted to do. And it, would, it, wasn't, it wasn't on me to do math. So 
Yeah. Yeah, I actually heard this before because my, my parents are accountants and huh. uh, my dad always told me that he had to just study uh, math at a super high level, especially in Hungary. Like the education system is like very, very rigorous. And huh. he always said that still during his career as an accountant, he never had to do anything but add, subtract, <laughs> multiply, yeah. That's division. Right. That's it. That's yeah. it. That's all you need. Everything else is done by the computer. No, so, right. so I see where you're coming from. It does require, though, like a systematic type of uh, type of thinking, which mm. if you combine with the creative type of thinking, uh, well, all kinds of fascinating results can follow. Again, this is why we have our logo, the two sides of the brain, the left brain and the right yeah. brain. Uh, yeah. So uh, t- tying into this, so uh, you have the benefit of a, an outsider's perspective because you came into data from uh, from another space and you kind of in self-starting way learn yeah. the ways of data and analytics. So uh, first of all, uh, do you think that there is a gap between how data analytics is being viewed by the practitioners themselves and businesses? And then uh, maybe a spin on that question is how do you think that data analytics is currently being perceived by corporations even who maybe nominally yeah. embrace data-driven ways of working yeah yeah you know I, I think i think uh there's a there's a big paradigm or a shift and it's occurring now i you know i i think in the past and as as we got more data right we needed better analysis and hence we created data scientists right let's 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 have people embark on a journey early on that they become developers and programmers, et cetera. And I, I think that's been great. And I think it I think it's serving corporations well because it's it's now taking all that data and putting it into terms we can comprehend, like an average user. I do think now that we've gotten kind of past that, you've got cloud storage, right? We can keep growing how much data that we're getting, uh, you know, that we can consume easier ways to get to it, right? For just an average user, which I think is really cr- critical is that accessibility. Now there's this need and you've got your scientists or people that specialize, you know, around data, but you also need the business people. And, and somewhere in between there is this gray area and, and, and it's different in every company. Sometimes it's IT in the business. Sometimes it's data scientists, you know, and the business and IT handles infrastructure. But there's this gray area. And, and, and that gray area to me is the sweet spot. That is those are the people today. I you know, that's who I look for. And that's who I'm trying to be is right in between all those facets to fill that void or that role. Here's the project. Here's the requirements. This is what we want to do on the business side. Here's the architecture. Here's what we have to work with today. Here's what we possibly could get to or build for the future. Here's my scientists, my people that are really smart and sharp that can develop that dashboard, that analytics. It's smooth. It it, it has some flexibility to it but it's not overwhelming. It's it's concise enough to go back to that business problem, right? And you're always looking at that triangle and those people that can fit in between. To me, those are those are the next, you know, successful leaders. I, I think in my opinion, you know, that end-to-end business knowledge or looking at that broad perspective, it's going to be so critical for our future because we're just going to keep getting more data more analytics, more insights. How do you be faster? How do you be more flexible ahead of your competition? To me, that that's where it's all going to head. And I, you know, I don't know what the new roles look like if people start in different areas and then they just begin to blend or bounce around. And maybe that's that's where HR, that's where we'll develop those roles. But I think it's a big question still. But you definitely see those people in the organization that can do that. Um, you know, tend to tend to get better opportunities, um, you know, uh, better, better uh, just recognition for that. So hmm. that, that ability to communicate in the business and think with that business perspective, uh, do you hmm. think it's an acquired skill? Is it a, a, an innate talent? Is it something that you can improve? Uh, do you do you think that you definitely just need to find the right type of person? Or can you breed that in house? Yeah, I you know, I would, I would say it could go either way. I mean, I, you know, when I started, I was, uh, you know, much more of an introvert, um, didn't really like large groups or talking in front of people. Um, and even today, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily, um, you know, uh, something I enjoy, but it's a skill set I've developed, right? So I think I'm a, I'm a product of that environment and just having to, to kind of grow myself, you know, and, and you're always getting better, right? You get more savvy at the communication piece. Because to me, that communication piece, if I'm communicating to a business audience, you know, I can I can have one approach that I take. Right. And I try to talk about it in business value or terms or processes that they can understand or comprehend. Examples, right, are huge with visuals. 
when you're talking on the IT side, you can be much more technical, right? The struggle, and I actually just today, I was on, a, we were building a deck for a kickoff for a large global project we have going on uh, starting next week. I've got both audiences. So when you pull like the executives and I've got business SMEs and I've got technical SMEs, everybody's all together trying to create the right deck, the right approach, the right communication tools is an art. <laughs> and I, I, I think I'm getting better the more I have to do it. But, you know, I, I think it is something that could be learned. I think your peer network, in my opinion, because I, I have contacts that I've kept over the years, whether it's, you know, Deloitte from back in the day or from Disney um, or, you know, some of my colleagues and peers there or even in broader Abbott. And I, I think your peer network and those relationships are critical. I, I think I think you can always get some constructive feedback at the company you work with. Um, but I think it's always a little selective or guarded. I think those closer peers, right, they can be a little bit more open if I bounce something off of them. They're like, no, that's crazy. That's not going to work. And here's why, right? You, you have that more trust and honesty. And I really have uh, some, some of the some of the people I worked with at Disney, I, I talked to them all the time. I mean, we were always bouncing off of each other, which is even with this, um, the podcast, like the data storytellers, that's why I, I listen to a fair amount of them now. And, you know, there's a lot of insights just hearing people's stories and just, you know, beginning to build relationships across this type of world. And how are you guys doing it? Well, why, why'd you take that path? You know, I think the more conversations like that, I, I think the better I become. So I, I do think it's something that can be developed if you don't necessarily have those, you know, that extrovert type trait. I think you can learn to do that. Yeah, it's going to pull some energy from you, but I think it's all about that process and just being logical about it and knowing your audience. You know, I, I think that is so critical when it comes to data and presenting about it um, is really knowing the audience that you're talking to. Absolutely. And you mentioned that it's kind of an art and absolutely. And in a way, it's a it's a combination of an art and a science because there are always principles that you can adhere to. But uh, naturally, you you got to develop that innate sense of how how are you connecting with your audience? And such a good point, because you mentioned this personal branding piece, which I definitely want to want to explore, because uh, we see now that coming from this tension, between yeah. how data analytics is being perceived by businesses and how data analytics practitioners themselves would like to be seen. Uh, because of this, we see a lot of uh, a lot of approaches online that just don't really produce the results that people are looking for. So let me give you an example. I mean, without naming any names, everyone knows those kind of uh, influencers out there who, from the need of being visible, and trying to get people to follow their lead kind of turns into this this dog and pony show. You know, it's almost like it, it, it's almost like this this circus clown profile of look, I'm going to do anything for you to pay attention to me instead right. of con yeah, exactly. And then and then instead of very consciously trying to figure out how should I look, how 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 should I be perceived? You know, actually one of our uh, uh, one of our contributors he mentioned this idea of the data consigliere from The Godfather. You know, there's the most influential person in the entire series because he is a trusted advisor. He is someone who people listen to. And then how does he position himself? You know, what is his approach? Uh, is he assertive? Is he humble? Is he loud? Uh, yeah. Does he choose his words carefully? Where does he apply pressure on the senior decision maker, the key decision maker, the godfather? Like, how does he navigate himself? It's very, very different from what you see out there now. And I know it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of part and parcel with today's social media culture that we're also on our end with the data storytellers. We try to like lead a crusade against of no, you got to do this the right way. You got to be careful with these things. You got to be conscious with these ways. And also you got to be authentic. So what are your thoughts on personal branding? Like how how did that come to play uh, 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 come to play for you as a professional? And how did that help you to be where you are today when one of the largest uh, healthcare medical devices companies in the world actually give you a very, like a huge responsibility to build a critical capability? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think it, some of this, a, a lot goes back to Disney and at Disney, you have a lot of onboarding or training classes that you do. And you talk a lot about brand. And I, I think for me, back from where I had that marketing interest, you know, I, I really kind of um, dug into that and thought about it and I thought about it at Disney, but even more broadly here, what it means. And I, I think it's evolved, you know, I, I think today, and as I've embarked on creating like a master data team or an MDM um, strategy, you know, as we work through that, 
you know, I think it's you have to know your personal brand and your personal brand is what you how you want to be perceived. And, you know, I, I think you have to have, a, you know, an, an honest check with yourself on what what you're capable of and what you're not and be able to be honest that I hate. I'm I'm not necessarily a, a, an IT guy, right? I, I I say that on calls. I always I'm always upfront that you know yes I can understand IT, yes I can understand architectures, and I can talk it, but I'm not the SME. You know what I mean? And I I think as I developed my brand, it was more honest and upfront on what I was really good at, and then find the experts, build my teams to supplement myself, right? And then you think you, you think of your personal brand and that's going through that self-assessment and you determine your your growth rate. Right. Where do you want to put investment into that's going to get return um, or what you enjoy, your passion. Right. Which is really what I focus on. Then you think about your team and that team brand. How are we master data? How are we branding ourselves in ARDX or Abbott Rapid Diagnostics in this division? What do we want to be today? What do we want to become what are those traits, those skill sets? Where are we going to invest for the future, right? And I, that's the way I think about that branding. And, and I, I agree with you. Um, and you always see that, right? I think with social media, it's a big one. People trying to do things or whether it's internally in a corporation, you're trying to get noticed, right? You're trying to look at me, look at me. And, you know, my, my thought or, or stance on that, if you are investing in yourself, you're investing in your team, you're working with peers and growing all that comes naturally and, and you'll get noticed probably when the time is right and not always the case, but I think if you're doing the right things and you're following those passions and you know, you're, you're one of my key behaviors and this is one we, we hire with it, looking for this behavior is curiosity. Keep being curious, simply ask the question, why, why do we do it like that? Why do we store the data here? Why is this the process that we use? Right even in yourself, right? I mean, you got to keep reinventing yourself. Um, and I went through so many career changes, but I use all my experience for every one of my careers. <laughs> and I think I think trying to find where, where you can keep building, and you may have a couple options that you choose throughout your career, but for me, it's sticking to that brand that you started with, evolving it slightly, and just keep building it. And, and try to be I think being authentic and genuine is, is is such a great way that you just you describe that. You know, I'm humorous on calls. I try to be funny. When I have project teams, I use humor because you, you have to have fun. <laughs> if you're not having fun in your job, it's gonna it's gonna flow across the peers, leaders, to your team, and everybody it it, it impacts, right? And so to me, I think you have to make sure you're in in a role that you're passionate and you're having fun. And that brand is something that you believe in and believe you can accomplish. And I, to me, man, that that's, what's most critical. I think, you know what I mean? Is that I'm always, always being passionate. I'm always having fun. And if I'm not, it's time, it's time to figure out why be curious. Why am I not happy and make that change, figure out what I need to do. So. Absolutely. And the curiosity piece is so important because like you already alluded to this, but we always see that the missing piece is really uh, trust because when you're a trusted advisor, then, then then people actually listen to you and follow your lead. But but what are the best ways you think to actually gain that trust leveraging your cu uh, curiosity? So when yeah. you're, you're genuinely invested in someone's uh, uh, interest, yeah, you definitely want to find out about what moves them what are their fears? What are their desires? So in your experience, what were your best ways of establishing that trust and asking the right questions and, and really building yeah. that relationship that will uh, yield fruit on the short, medium and long term? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think in the beginning, right, because when you first there's there's your first uh, interpretation and you get one chance to make that first impression, you know, with a peer, a colleague, a friend, et cetera. Right. And I, I think making sure, especially in that first impression, you're putting your best foot forward. If, if there, someone's coming to you in, in the workplace and they have an issue or a pain point, you have to be empathetic in that first initial conversation. You have to listen. You have to understand it. You need to put yourself, like we were talking about earlier, wearing the different hats, put, themselves, uh, put yourself in their shoes. Why, why is this this problem for them? You know what I mean? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm calling on a, you know, a hospital. I'm in front of the customer, but I've got inaccurate data or I can't pull their purchase history to have this conversation with them. And so put yourself standing there knowing that you're being driven, right, to, to, to position our products, to sell, right, to do the best what's for the patient, et cetera. If you don't have the information you need, 
you feel stupid, right? And so that's that's it. You know, I, I try to just be empathetic, try to understand, put myself in their shoes and feel what it is that they feel, their frustration, right? Then I feel I'm better, you know, I can, I can better develop that relationship with them. And I, you know, always honest and genuine and upfront, you know, and if I don't agree with something or I, I, I don't think it's the right recalls, I bring it up. I say, listen, I, I don't know if that's the right approach or the right root issue. Can we talk a little bit more? And I, I think just really trying that ebb and flow. And I, I think it's important those first few conversations because um, you're both kind of touching off on, you're trying to fill each other out. You're trying to develop that respect, that trust, trying to make it safe where you can have these conversations. And then the follow-up. To me, the follow-up is most critical. If they've asked you to do something, you got to do it. If you've agreed and you've set a date, then you follow up because as soon as you miss it or you don't do it, you just lost that respect. You lost that trust, that rapport that you're trying to, you're trying to build. And, um, and it's repetition, just trying to be as consistent as you can. And things happen in the workplace, meetings, you know, come up or you have to shift priorities, communicate, just say, Hey, I'm sorry. I committed to this for this day. I can't make that deadline. I'm about to shift this out, but I promise we'll move it to here. We'll put another resource on it, whatever, whatever that is that to mitigate it. But to me, it's just being upfront, you know, admit, admit your faults admit when you make a mistake. Admit if you drop the ball, you know, if you took the wrong approach, just be upfront and honest. And I, I think most people, right, are, are going to be empathetic to that and they're going to respect you for it. And I, I think that's what's that's what's key, you know, and just feed off that curiosity with knowing them as a person, knowing their role knowing their business, knowing what they're dealing with, right? I think if you can do that, it it, it serves you better in the long run. Um, so That's such a good point. And actually, when uh, when you think about building that trust, it's almost like building credit. Because when the credit card company, you promise that you will pay it back and then you pay it back, well, that's how you build your credit. And, and you can't really circumvent the need to apply this over time. So uh, with this, have you seen a difference between building trust with senior stakeholders and maybe business users? This is specifically for data and analytics. What were the biggest challenges for you when you when you were trying to engage maybe higher level decision makers or maybe connect to the needs and desires of of the business users on the front lines? Yeah, no, it's it's, it's know your audience, right? And that is when the when you're going up to an executive level or senior leadership, you know, I, I think adjusting and trying to figure out what is so critical to them and their business, their function, their role, and understanding that pain point, but positioning whatever it is, how you're going to help support it, right? And I I think it's a very different conversation versus um, someone that that's a peer. Are, are working at a, at a different level um, because there's usually a very strong confidence that you're dealing with because they know their business. They know their issues, right? Don't come telling me what it is, right? So you you really have to, like it gets back to that art is trying to, trying to figure out what's so important to them. Why are they frustrated about something, right? How can I help or solve them? Or how can I be upfront? You know, this is a broader issue we're going to have to pull in a few more partners. You know that honesty, um, and it and it and it goes well sometimes. And sometimes you're, you know, you're retreating a little bit, and you're figuring out, well, what did I do wrong right there in that conversation, right? And how do I regroup from it? And I, I will tell you, with with an executive audience, I do think there's a fair amount of that. You know what I mean? I think you're you're learning, and I, I think you just have to learn. You have to learn the person. You know what I mean? You have to learn how to work best with them, and it's always different. <laughs> I wish I wish I could write a book on here's how to do it. You know, here's the steps. And um, and there's books out there. But I will tell you, I don't I don't think they work. And I think you have to study people and you have to study their business and you have to study the current issue at hand and uh, be curious and know your stuff. Right. And, and just be prepared. Um, and you're never going to be fully prepared. And then you go back, you readjust and you try again. Right. And I, <laughs> I uh, that's 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 my approach. And um you know, keep learning. That's what I do. So just treat, be better. Absolutely. Um, and you're right that there's no silver bullet in this because every individual is different. Now, something that we do explore uh, at the Data Storytellers with our members, especially, is how how can you be curious in the most 
effective way. So more like on the tactical level, because we understand, and this is also what you need to put together the multiple pieces of the puzzle. If we talk to uh, senior executives and data analytics at big companies from these individual stories, you can kind of see how the ideal data transformation leader looks like. What what are they struggling with? um, uh, What are the opportunities in the industry and all of that? Where should you aim? How should you aim? But then when it comes to having those conversations, asking the right questions. Uh, again, we read so many books on psychology and influence and relationship right. building. Most of them, as it usually um, is the case, are garbage, but then there are a few gems. And even you know, without being a part of, let's say, the data storytellers, where we do look at this closely, uh, one book that I can recommend is uh, Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference, which is actually a negotiation book. Now, you would think that negotiation is, is, is bartering. It's about getting the best price, but not right. really. It's about aligning perspectives and, and putting someone at ease in a conversational context so that it can be as mutually fruitful as possible. And yeah. in this, you can use like certain certain modes of behavior and asking the right questions, uh, finding out the right things. How can you get to the heart of the matter? Even if you think about the heart of the matter, that that phrase itself means that the uh, matter itself is something lifeless. The heart of it is what gives it meaning. So, so what moves this person? Uh, not yeah. on a material level, but really deep down. And when you can get to that, now that's where you can have those conversations that will change careers, that will really you know shift the journeys of entire companies potentially yeah yeah no i i I think it's a good point it sounds like an interesting book um i think you know for me you you know your strengths right and if i'm looking to have that conversation i'm gonna try to leverage what i know well and to kick off to find the common alignment or common ground and and that's where you're hoping you you find some place that you can connect with that person or that executive or whoever you're, you're talking to and for me i'll go back to some of those finance routes right whether it's looking at data or financial performance of their business, and I can break it into financial metrics, use 80-20 rules, right? I love 80-20, because usually if you look at a business, there's 20% that makes up a huge portion or volume of that business and and looking from a valuation aspect or to look at it strategically, right? That's the place I always start, because if you try to look at everything, you never get anything done. You never have enough time, right? I start there. I find the stuff based on my strengths and background that I can leverage. And then you try to find in that conversation, that common ground. So you can really talk and get, just get to where you're now you're talking the same language. Yeah. Okay. I got you. Yeah. I see what you're saying. I I looked at this and um, you know, as soon as you can drive what I consider that negotiation, like you're describing, or it's, it's now turning into a conversation. That's where, you know, okay, I've got it right. I'm, I'm there. Now we're just having a conversation, no different like you and I are having right now. When it starts to flow, it feels easier. That's when you can really start to open up with your ideas, your different ways of looking at it, your questions to probe a little bit deeper or even debating. Because I think debating, I, I, I am outspoken. I am a strong devil's advocate. You know, I debate until until I absorb and I'm comfortable and then I'm all in. I am fully engaged in whatever it is, but I will I will debate up to that point and, it, and at any level, you know, because I feel like that's my job. You know, what I mean, is, is to think outside the box, question things. And then once I'm in, I'm all in and I support it 110 percent. So I, you know, but uh, but yeah, it's an art, man. But I <laughs> yeah, I think whatever you can do that works for you best, you know. Yeah. And also what you mentioned is that you like to be the devil's advocate. And we, what we see sometimes is, is that when it comes to data and analytics, Sometimes you don't get pushback and uh, someone's assumption can be that, okay, if I don't get pushback, that's a good thing. Uh, But we've seen the opposite because a a huge thing uh, that people tend to just glaze over is the lack of understanding of what data analytics is. And this is something that we sometimes coin as data literacy or data fluency. And people, people don't push back because they don't understand what you're talking about. And that's a yeah. huge, huge thing. Even in persuasion psychology, we know that the uh, when we look at emotions during an exchange, even that book that I mentioned by Chris Voss, who used to be an FBI negotiator, by the way, the lead negotiator for the FBI. And he said that in these uh, negotiations, what you want is positive emotion. You want to evoke positive emotion because that's where you can have productive conversations. Yeah. And some people say that actually the, the worst thing that can happen in a dialogue like this is actually not, let's say some something like antipathy or hate, but confusion. Confusion yeah. is the kryptonite 
of, of influence. So how have you seen this? Because again, you come from the outside in a way. So yeah. you self-educated yourself in uh, a data. Uh, working for a big company, have you seen data literacy as a pressing need when you approach engaging the organization? Is this something that you think should be uh, built consciously, like actually making the organization data literate? Or should you take those steps to really humanize that language as much as possible so that they don't need to be data literate? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think the more you can normalize or humanize it is important. I you know, I, I think this always comes up too with uh requirements gathering, right? Where you're trying to get to true requirements. Cause a lot of times people know what they want when they see it, but they don't know exactly what they want as far as giving specific requirements and how to define that, especially when you get into dashboards, right? And you're you're saying, Well, tell me exactly what attributes or metrics that you're looking to see where are these coming from you know most people or users aren't going to know that information or there's going to take a lot of hand holding so i think where we can normalize it and, and it becomes that conversation again i think that's important because you don't want to get to passive agreement like you present something is this what you want and because you're not putting it in a way that they can comprehend with examples or how they're going to use it in that decision that insight then you get passive agreement. They say, yes, this looks this looks good. You know, a, a team goes off and they build it, right? They build something and three weeks later they come back. Hey, here it is. Oh, this this isn't right. No, I, I, I can't use this. No, I, I am missing X, right? And, you know, we've been trying to use more sprint methodologies, right? Where you're you're building. Don't, don't go too far, right? Give them a taste of it. What do you think? Yep. Okay. Go back and try to run those in four week increments, et cetera. So we can, we can have a broader or longer conversation when you're developing those requirements. But, you know, I, I think the more you can normalize it to, to ways or examples or try to get to that key decision that they're trying to make and using this data, right? If you can get to that conversation and understand it and you both have that alignment, then you can really start to to to, to delve into developing good requirements, right? So you get a better build. You're more you're more efficient, right? You're not running through multiple builds, so. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like you need to you need to sell this. I know that sales does have this negative connotation uh, attached to it because when we say sales, we still think about the the used car salesman from the seventies, sure. right? But but it, it it's just a meme. It doesn't really exist. It's not how sales works. And also. Uh, Ultimately, especially if you're a senior data practitioner or any practitioner really in a in a serious company, you can get away with that. I mean, n- not for not longer than an hour, maybe. I mean, if yeah. you want to build these resilient relationships, you do have to do your due diligence and really sell these ideas so that people actually get excited about that in a, in, in, in a meaningful way. Have you ever thought about your role as someone who has to really pitch? analytics and, and, and data for the business users and uh, that that naturally requires relationship building but have you ever uh, have you ever observed uh, yourself trying to sell this to people yeah yeah absolutely um and even in one of the the projects that we're working on right now whenever you get into large global projects if they carry a a, a heavy price tag or they 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 suck up resources across that corporation etc and they're going to take time of five, six months, or even years, right? You do have to sell the concept. If you're if you're the lead, you're driving it, you have got to sell that concept. You have got to sell yourself or that team or that project team. I, I you know, and, and, and like you said, sales might not be the right thing, but you're trying to develop that trust. Hey, have confidence in us, have confidence in this concept. This is the right thing. This is why. This is the risk that we see and where this could, you know, go a few different options or paths. And this is where, you know, I I know for us, we're doing a lot more rapids or phase zeros to try to really develop just the roadmap. Let's assess, right? Let's analyze and assess current state. Let's understand the requirements of what we're trying to get to and that requirements, trying to have not just passive agreement. Hey, are we all bought into it? Now let's develop that roadmap. Then that next phase, now let's take that roadmap and figure out how are we going to implement? How are we going to phase it, right? What makes the most sense? You know, this is our big vision, but maybe we should really scope this down and start very small and have a little win, have some success, right? That we can build on, you build that consensus within the organization. And I I think if you're in in a smaller organization, this is a lot easier. I know back in the days, right, I had the U.S. or one ERP system and one analytics system on the top of it. Oh. Is, is a dream, right? All of a sudden now you've got 
20 plus ERP systems, multiple CRM instances, and you're globally across the world dealing with time zones, cultures. It's a whole different ball game. And I, I, you know, I don't think any one person can say they're they're perfect at all of that. You know what I mean? I, I think each product, you're always learning. You are always learning. You're trying to figure it out. What's the best approach? How do we scope this? You know, and I, you know, I've done some things that went really well. And I've done some that, you know, you learn from and you're like, this, this is, this did not go well. You know, what did, what did we do wrong? Right. And even language barriers. I mean, we don't even think about it, but language barriers, whether it's technology or in a system, right. Translating to one language versus the other, or simply just having that requirements conversation and trying to get to like, like you said, like agreement on requirements, et cetera, when you're working through a translator or one person that's communicating for a team or, or of 30 people that are designing something. And that, that is a whole different game, man. And it is an art. I, you know, I, I, uh, I'm still learning in that regard, I think. Absolutely. And when we talk about art, I mean, obviously as our name suggests, we are deeply passionate about storytelling. So yeah. a lot of what we talked about today was about building a relationship, which it's mainly the, the the receiving end. It's like how 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 do I stay open to someone else's perspective? How do I stay curious and really gather up uh, the their reality so that I can make meaningful meaningful recommendations? So I can build the right solutions for the right people mm-hmm. at the right time. Now, on the more proactive side here, when you first of all you listen and you ask questions at the same time there is that critical moment when you need to communicate. You need to get a message through. So how important was storytelling for you during your career have you ever thought about this in an intentional way this storytelling just just happened in certain instances what is your relationship with storytelling yeah i you know i i use it all the time um you know it it, i'll go back to an example uh something or a concept from disney and it was really imagineers that would do this more um and i had a role where i worked in capital planning for a number of years at disney and imagineers whenever they worked on some type of project you, you know, you would have like a team and they get put together, right? And they would do concept art. And you've probably seen some of this online where they, you know, they literally take you through the story of, of whatever it is. It could be an attraction. It could be a resort. It could be anything, right? But they're, they're bringing you into that theme, the entire theme, not just the attraction. I'm walking through and I'm waiting in the line. And how am I entertained as a customer, right? And I have seen I have seen Imagineers do crazy stuff on walks, right? Where they'll, you know, we'll be walking an attraction and somebody's on their knees shuffling through so they can get a kid's perspective of the line <laughs> in that attraction. I mean, it and stuff, seeing stuff like that. And I think the storyboard, what they call a storyboarding approach. You know, I, I think I use that today um, and I've used it on a few projects, whether it was explaining master data management modules, for example, I put a house, right? Here's my house. Each room in my house is this is my customer, you know, module. This is my product. This is my vendor in my room. You know, I've got attributes and I'm trying to put rules and that's the theme of my room and the attributes of the furniture. So I, you know, I try to use storyboarding or those visuals to tell the story based on something that person can easily relate to, right? And sometimes we even take it and we use that concept as the logo to brand the project, right? You know, I I think the more you can use those stories or even personal stories that are funny, you know, that can relate into whatever the concept is or whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's a dashboard, I, I think that makes it more genuine and it makes it more memorable. And I think that's what you're trying to get to is to make, so that when they walk away, they may not fully understand all of master data management, but they'll remember that house, right? Because you, you you present it as something goofy, you know, <laughs> make fun of yourself, right? I do that all the time and, and try to make it where it's that memorable conversation. Oh, yeah, MDM. Yeah, you're talking about the house and it's got the rooms with the customer. Then that gives you that next time that conversation. Now you can go a, a level deeper. And I think that's where storytelling or storyboarding it, it it really helps you in the conversations, you know. Mm. And I'm surprised that this never actually came up in any of the interviews that uh, we've done so far. The the storyboarding. So it's good that you you do address it now. 
because I was always fascinated with that. Uh, I always looked at uh, famous directors for inspiration in storytelling, obviously. So let's say you have Martin Scorsese or Ron Howard specifically, who I remember talking about storyboarding. And it's almost like, okay, you have these scenes and you have the shots and those are mini stories on their own. You need to you need to tell the story of that scene, but also you're telling the meta story that, that yeah. unfolds during the movie. In a way, I see you guys doing the same. You need to tell these individual stories to individual people in individual specific uh, situations, but you're also telling a meta story of what data analytics should mean for the entire organization. And one thing that Martin Scorsese said specifically, this, as a director of the movie, it's one thing that you have to have that artistic uh, angle on things. Also, you need to organize logistics and all that, but ultimately you are the owner uh, and, and the steward of that story. You know the story and you need to bring it to life and to get it to the right audience. So uh, uh, what is what is your take on the responsibility of the data leader to purvey that story and to make sure that the company organically and naturally integrates analytics as a way of being have you ever thought about that uh in terms yeah. of the in terms of extreme ownership taking that ownership over that story yeah i you know i i think to be a great leader in analytics you have to own that you have to be accountable to it at least to be able to tell your version of that story um you know it, for me personally if i if i'm building a dashboard one great thing you can do and you can do it in excel you know you can use it a piece of paper and sketch this vision of this dashboard, you know, put your, your funny graphs on it, put your metrics or your filters, step back and talk it. Now I have this and put fake data or make something up, right? Now I'm going to walk through, if I was talking this dashboard, if I was using it to make a decision, say it out loud, okay, looks like this month revenue, I'm seeing a downward trend. Why? Based on that, it looks like customer A, B, and C have dropped. Why are they falling off? Oh, it's these specific products. Oh, these products are on back order. And now I've answered my question. And to me, if you can step back and, and literally storyboard yourself, and you, people are going to make fun of you if you're doing this in the office, be like, what the hell is up uh, with Jason right now? <laughs> but, but to me, if you can draw on a whiteboard, and this is no different if you're presenting like a deck or a presentation storyboard practice it say it out loud right get your story or your flow and i have a few executives at abbott um who i learn a lot from because they'll review a deck and they're like well what's your story though yeah this is great content oh i like this slide but i just don't get your story i don't get your flow you know and you know you hear sometimes it described as like an elevator pitch like here's mm -hmm. my section and what's my elevator pitch for all these slides? And I, you know, sometimes I see people step back and use slide sorter so they can look at all their slides. Well, how am I jumping through my story, right? And I I think I think we can always be better at it, you know, and, and that's how that's how I incorporate it today, man. I, I, you know, I do the visual stuff and I do it with my team. I have great leaders on my team and that's something we do. We have fun with it and we just talk and we debate and we argue with each other. No, I don't think that's right. No, you're not going to use it for that. What if we change this graph? Would that change the story? Right. So I, I think you can really use it and have fun with that, um, you know, with with your organization and also with your teams just to make it interesting. So people aren't just putting data somewhere, building it, make make your teams um, a part of it. Right. So they, they're a part of the conversation or the why why are we putting this data in this database or why are we governing it? Oh, it's because we can get to the story. We can get to this insight, this decision. You know, and I, I think, I think you can use storyboarding to do that. And it doesn't have to be too formal. You can, you can have fun with it. Um, so. You know, that, that's great stuff. And uh, there's just so much more to explore, especially with regards to uh, storytelling. And we, could, we would never get to the end of it. Maybe maybe some other time we can, maybe we can work with you on a, on a piece where you can zoom in a little bit uh, on, 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 on a certain aspect of this. But uh, I think we will have to land the plane just due to uh, time limitations here. I want to make sure that we still have time, though, for one final uh, question. So you're looking at your career and having come all the way where you are now, all the experiences that you've had, all the conversations that you conducted with others, the relationships that you've built, what would be your personal recommendation for the data leaders of the future who want to leave a mark and really want to make the most of the the, the decade of data that's that's upon us? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think when you're first starting your career, figure out that initial passion or interest that you have, whether it's data science, whether it's finance and accounting, whether it's marketing, I, you know, I, I supply chain, they, they're all great places to start uh, and start your path or your role. And in that interest, if you have that interest in data analytics, begin to evolve yourself, 
learn learn a little bit more, start to touch on different areas. And, and now you had this original expertise. What's the next level of expertise? Maybe now, you know, I had supply chain, but I want to learn a little bit more about finance and finance process because um, that feeds into uh, financial planning, which is, equates to demand planning. So I can immediately tie into it. Well, that then leads me down that path, right? I want to learn a little bit more about data because our data is crap and I need better data. And so I'm going to learn a little bit more about these tools. You know, to me, like, you know, you're always thinking end to end. You're always thinking in this future state, like that gray area that we talked about, that triangle of IT, you know, data and analytics or data science and the business or operations, right? Um, and then the, the one that will come later in your career, I think, is that leadership or that executive that overarching layer, but to me, be in the gray. Develop yourself to be in the gray area, and in my opinion, you're going to set yourself up for opportunities. You'll be valuable, you know, if you can understand someone else's pain or end to end, or put it in that perspective, or jump to one perspective. Right? It, it, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't find people. It's very challenging to find it, right? And I, I think if you can develop that niche. You're going to be very marketable in the future just because of where we're heading. It, it's it's only going to get stronger, right? When you think about analytics and and where we all want to go. Um, so absolutely, yeah. and and as these horizons expand and the potential of that data analytics effort all across the board just keeps growing and growing, what we find is yeah. that people just fail to take advantage of all, all all that potential, unlocking that potential, and that's what we found exactly that the way to do this is finding the right way to engage living, breathing human beings. It's not about stacking more more technology because that's great. That's awesome that we can do things that we couldn't do in the 1990s, right? But you yeah. you, you got to catch up. You got to catch up on the human side of things. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and, you know, you keep following that curiosity. You keep following that passion. You keep having fun. And you're going to get to that point, right? You're going to find a point, I think, and everyone will have this in their career that, you know what? It's time. You know, I, I don't have that same level of passion. I'm, I'm not as energetic as I once were. Um, there's people or my team. They are so strong. It's time to let them run things. You know what I mean? And I will at some point I will tap out and I may do something on the side. And, and you know, you always um, hear the past of consulting. I always think about teaching. I, I, I really sometimes feel a little bit of a con to that. I just want to go fishing too, you know, you know, and I think recognizing that, that when you lose that passion or that energy, you know, knowing that as well, I think, I think it's, a, it's important, no different than when a product, you know, has lost its, uh, lost its, uh, a, a gleam, right. You know, it's time to put it to, put it to pasture. And I, you know, so I, my stance is go hard and, and, and be energetic and be passionate. And when it's time to do something else, or maybe it's time to go fishing, you know, know that as well. And it's okay. Yeah, yeah. You know? but, but, but leave it all on the court. That's right. <laughs> leave it all on the court. That's it. Yeah. And don't try to go back like so many athletes do, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, Jason, this, this is a great note to finish on. Thank you very much for your insights. It was a very fun interview, and I'm sure that our members would love to hear more from you. So, uh, so we'll explore that as well. All right. All right. Thanks a lot. Appreciate the time. 